0: and wellness in downtown Belfast offering yoga and wellness through weekly yoga classes, workshops, private and group yoga sessions as well as health services like therapeutic massage and reiki. More about the studio at anandayogabelfastme.com or 2072187017.
1: It's 10 o'clock, and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill and streaming online at WERU.org. Democracy Forum with your host, Dan Luther, is up next.
2: Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the Democracy Forum. This is the 10th program in our series this year to broad- broadcast at this time on the third Friday of each month. We're featuring topics in Maine's participatory democracy, encouraging citizens to take an active role in government and politics. This program is a project of the League of Women Voters Down East, produced in cooperation with WERU-FM. Our conversation today is titled, Is Government Doing Good? Policy Feedback Effects and the Civic Divide. We'll talk about new political science research into policy feedback effects and how public policy design affects people's sense of themselves as citizens and their propensity to participate. We'll be taking your questions and calls during the second half of the show, so stand by to join the conversation. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. I'll be your host for Democracy Forum today. Let me introduce our guests. Joining us in the studio is Amy Freed. Amy's been on our show a few times before. She's the professor and chair of the Department of Political Science at the University of Maine. She oversees the Maine Policy Scholar program at the University of Maine, among many other activities. Thank you, Amy, for joining us. Welcome. It's great to be here. Joining us on the phone is Don Moynihan. Don is the McCourt Chair at the McCourt School of Public Policy at Georgetown University, who has recently co-authored a new book, Administrative Burden, Policymaking by Other Means, which is particularly relevant to this topic, and we're very pleased to have Don with us today, too. Welcome, Don.
0: Thanks for having me.
2: New political science research is examining the topic of, quote-unquote, policy feedback effects how some public policies seem to motivate more active civic engagement among citizens while others engender a sense that democracy is not working for them. Some public policies create good feelings toward government, some not so good feelings. Um, So we want to talk about what is this new research? How do these policy feedback effects work? What is the research showing and what are the implications for legislators and advocates? So Amy, let's put it to you first. Just Kind of give us the broad sweep overview of what this research area um, sweeps in and what the research is teaching us
1: sure um, if you're th- if you think of uh, what happens with politics and public policy without thinking about feedback it would look like this uh, you have a public out there the public has lots of different opinions you have candidates interest groups political parties um, who are going to mobilize them and appeal to them in various ways. You have elections. You pick the particular people who are serving in government, goes through the whole governing process to <clears throat> to try to uh, pass certain policies. And then let's say certain policies get passed and you have certain rules that go along with it. Um, and there we have public policy. Now, of course, the public's going to react to that to some extent. They may like the policies, they may not like the policies, but that's the sort of like, I think, normal, typical civics view of how government works. When you think about policy feedback, what you are encouraged to do is to look at how the policies themselves reshape politics. So the politics may look different because you've created certain policies. And there's an example that's probably familiar with lot, to lots and lots of people, um, a lot of times when people talk about trying to change uh, Social Security in some way, we say Social Security is the third rail of American politics. If you touch it, the third rail, you'll, you'll die, right? So politicians don't want to mess with Social Security very much. When George W. Bush tried to private, partially privatize Social Security, there was a huge amount of pushback. Well, why is that? Because the existence of Social Security, also the existence of Medicare, changed politics. Uh, it created the uh, elderly as a very strong constituency. And that would be one element that people looking at policy feedback would think about. It's not the only thing, but it's it's uh, one of the things. So, you know, if you were going to say, okay, what did Medi- what did Medicare do? What did Social Security do? one way to look at it is just, you know, look at the policies. And you have health coverage, you have retirement security, you have a reduction in poverty for the elderly. Those are policy impacts. But there's not just policy impacts, there's also political impacts.
2: So that policy created its own constituency is sort of what you're saying. And that constituency organizes to protect the policy. Sort of.
1: Absolutely. So the elderly really become an, an a very active, activated constituency. We know they vote more than anybody else. <laughs> and they are very, very protective of those programs.
2: Do you want to add to that, Don, just in terms of the broad brush of this whole research area and um, to give people a conceptual framework for the rest of the conversation
0: today? Yeah, I'll add a little, uh, but I think the, the explanation you just heard is a really good one. Um, the, there are two ways to sort of further break down the idea of policy feedback by looking at different groups of the affects, And one is that it affects elites in that it creates sort of path dependency in how policy is made. And so there's some stream of policy feedback research that really just looks at how policymakers engage with policy and the degree to which their choices become constrained by what has gone before, um, and so a good example of that would be if you look at the U.S. healthcare system, which grew out of uh, essentially an employee-employer-based system after World War II. That's really shaped the conversations we still have today about what we do about healthcare. The, the U.S. healthcare system is not one that anyone would design if you were starting from scratch. But instead, was sort of uh, managed and amended it because uh, policymakers are feel constrained to protect uh, much of what is already in place, rather than taking it all apart and starting again. Um, and the second way in which policy feedback uh, generates these effects is, uh, as, as was mentioned, the effects on, on the sort of the, the citizen, the mass public, and and here the idea that. Policies make citizens by uh, teaching them messages about their standing as citizens, but also by, by providing them resources which they then use and draw on to become more effective political advocates. And you know, one of the most basic of those resources is, is education, right? So um, having, uh, at a global level, broad access to education is a pretty certain way of increasing political participation over time.
2: And that, so, I mean, one, one is, is, the first example, if I heard you right, Don, is that there are sort of these institutional um, stakeholders that get created by policy that may or may not resist change or reform if it affects their stake. And then mm-hmm. the other is, sort of the citizen or grassroots aspect of it and I'm kind of interested in what you said about um, how some part of this is implicit messages that citizens may receive I see Amy nodding so talk about that a little bit Amy.
1: Sure I mean uh, Don mentioned education and there's really great research related to that Um, and there are the, 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 the sort of jargony language on this is saying that you can, you have certain uh, resource effects and interpretive effects. So the resource effects are you're gaining certain abilities from education, uh, which, you know, puts you in a good position, certain kinds of jobs, et cetera, professional standing. And then the interpretive is the the kind of the message that you're a worthwhile member of the society in a way, a sense of empowerment. And so, uh, for example, uh, I'll just mention Uh, two authors, one, Suzanne Mettler, who wrote a really great book about the GI Bill and how, uh, you know, the post-World War II GI Bill, which, you know, millions of people used and how that affected them as citizens. They, you know, certainly we know that they did well economically. A lot of times people say the GI Bill built the American middle class, But it also affected them in their sense of as uh, having a stake in society and as citizens. Um, And uh, Deandra Rose, who's a political scientist at Duke, uh, wrote a really great book about women and how education for women, all the different policies pre-Title IX, post-Title IX have affected women in terms of both their sense of citizenship and their the resources that they get from having the education. And then they become more involved as, as citizens and uh, see themselves as having more of a stake. And of course, if you have some group that wasn't involved before in politics that then gets involved, that can shift the issues that are considered, you know, there that what issues those people are interested in, it can it can affect the balance of power. Ultimately, who gets elected uh, and who politicians have to pay attention to.
2: Are there counterexamples where policies have depressed uh, people's sense of themselves as citizens? The two you gave, Amy, seem to be empowering, but there must be some on the other side too.
1: Sure, actually, there's a there's a book. Uh, uh, the criminal justice system that talks about this called arresting citizenship, which uh, finds that experiences people have with the criminal justice system, if you have a very strong presence in your community, not necessarily if you yourself have been arrested or gone to jail, I mean, those are effects too. But just if you live in a community where there's stop and frisk laws and you, know, you just don't feel empowered by the criminal justice system, you feel disempowered by it, it also... Makes you feel like the government is not on your side and that you're not going to have very much of an impact. Um, I've sometimes thought that this means that, you know, like when you get rid of felon disenfranchisement laws in some state, uh, which of course most states have them, Maine is very unusual. We even let people vote when they're in jail. But if you get rid of felon disenfranchisement laws, it's not going to be enough to just say, okay, that now you can go vote. Probably there needs to be some effort to really pull people into the system because of the sense of disempowerment from contact with the criminal justice system.
2: Do you want to add to that, Don?
0: Yeah, I think any policy where people experience the state as disempowering, where the state removes their autonomy, causes a sense of stress or a sense of frustration, or is a feels demeaning in some way? uh, Those are experiences of negative policy feedback. Um, And so the criminal justice uh, domain is an obvious example there, but much of our our welfare programs, uh, which are means tested, have some elements of those same negative effects. So if you're listening at home and you're writing down a list of books or authors to follow up with, uh, Jamela Missioner's work On Medicaid, where she interviewed Medicaid recipients and their interpretation of of those experiences in applying for Medicaid or staying on Medicaid, uh, I think is an essential book in helping you to understand why those experiences can be frustrating and make people feel quite um, distant from the state. Um, Another example of what is, in theory, a constitutional right, but one that's very contested, is access to abortion. And so we have in many states um, requirements that the state imposes upon abortion providers that they in turn also provide or impose upon uh, the patients that come into their care to do things like uh, read scripts about uh, the potential uh, cost to murder mother or uh, the development of the child that is not medically necessary that doesn't really do anything except to make the, the, the woman feel uh, 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 supervised under the control of the state and as if her choice is not really a choice that she's allowed to make with some degree of autonomy. Um, so I think that's another example of a, of a domain where the state was really reaching into uh, private decisions and casting an eye on judgment. Um, and it's interpreted that way by, by the people who are receiving it.
2: You're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU-FM. This is Anne Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our topic today is, is government doing good, policy feedback effects and the civic divide? Our guests this morning are Amy Freed, professor and chair of the Department of Political Science at the University of Maine, and Don Moynihan, McCourt Chair at the McCourt School of Public Policy at Georgetown University. We're privileged to have them both with us today. And we've been talking about um, policy feedback effects in the way that they may act on citizens to empower their civic engagement or to disempower their civic engagement. And I want to ask the question next in terms of how does this really play out in terms of disengagement or engagement? Like how do we measure whether people are becoming more civically active or less civically active as a result of some of these effects. Who wants to go first?
0: Uh, well, I, I think a political scientists and Amy can this, uh, have some standard items by which they try to measure uh, political participation. So the traditional one is whether you vote, um, but more basic ones like whether you uh, engage in politics by knocking on doors, whether you have high civic capital, so whether you um, do things like go out and volunteer, mm-hmm. um, but also looking at people's uh, political efficacy, so their sort of sense of self-confidence of citizens. Do, do I think that I make a difference in society as well as in their, their trust in government? So that's another well-established item. And trust in other citizens. And so there's, there's uh, evidence for all of those types of measures in in different places that when people have these negative experiences of the state, those measures of civic participation tend to be negatively affected. Mm -hmm.
2: Um, You you didn't mention people's attitudes towards government itself. Is that one of the things? Like, Do people like or dislike government or tend to favor more or less government as a result of this?
0: uh, I think... They, they are, they're trusting government. This there's, there's sort of a documented effect on trusting government. So for example, if you have similar um, socio-demographic backgrounds but experience more universal programs versus more means tested programs, you're more likely to have a higher sense of trust in government. Um, I, I don't know if there's work that is expressly about your support for um, broadening the size of government. Um, but it seems like the, uh, trust in government is one of those measures that everyone can basically agree is, is pretty important for a functioning democracy. You mentioned
2: um, means-tested versus universal programs, and that seemed like it sort of implicated a sense of worthiness in the conversation. Amy, is that sort of what's going on there?
1: Uh, well, there's definitely some stigma in society towards certain programs for low-income people Um, and you know uh, there's uh the idea of who's the worthy recipient or the you know the even among low-income people who who are the worthy poor um, you know uh, can go back historically and look at the development of social welfare programs and you know often they were initially for for widows and widows with with children Um, And, you know, single mothers would fall into a didn't get coverage at all. And then when they did, it was often seen in a very negative kind of stigmatized way. You know, the the welfare mother or the Reaganite kinds of language of welfare queens. Um, You know, one thing that I'd add that suggested by what Don was saying is, is that it does a lot of these programs can vary by place. So different states can you can have the same program, but they because they have different choices that they can make and how they carry them out uh, what's included and uh, whether there's other kinds of requirements like work requirements uh, it'll have a different kind of sensibility and that's one of the things that that Medicaid book that uh, Don mentioned t- definitely highlights uh, you know when you you can you have this variability and in, in coverage and variability and how and how people are treated um, and then you know, that certainly can affect people's sense of of uh, citizenship and and empowerment. Don, tell us And, and
0: what work requirements is. Uh, if I can interject, yeah, sure. it's also a great example of the politics of some of these burdens and how they're implemented in practice. Because Maine, I believe, had uh, planned work requirements in place under Governor Page, but they've been blocked now by Governor Mills, um, and so. It's a very clear illustration of how sometimes these choices that are made about how burdensome uh, or how how negative these experiences are with government really are a function of political choices rather than something that's inevitable or we just have to take as part and parcel of a a means-tested program.
2: Don, tell us a little bit about your work on administrative burdens and how that fits into this suite of topics.
0: So it's really a complement to the idea of policy feedback that we've been talking about this morning. Uh, it's a bolder essentially about how does the citizen experience government on a day-to-day basis. Uh, and so the, what we describe as administrative burdens, uh, my co-author is Pam Hurd, are, are the frictions of interacting with government. Um, and they come in different formats. So one is the learning cost of finding out if you're eligible for a program and and what it takes to apply. Uh, There's also the compliance cost of filling out forms or documenting you are who you say you are, responding to to bureaucratic directives. And then the third category is psychological cost. So uh, your sense of stigma that Amy mentioned earlier, if you're participating in, in an unpopular program. Do you experience a loss of autonomy? Do you find the experience stressful? Um, And collectively, we think these burdens are part of the policy feedback process because all policies have to be implemented, and these burdens arise in the process of implementation. They therefore uh, color our experience and perception of government, and and to some degree they're inevitable, but uh, part of the theme of our book is that they're often – Deployed unnecessarily and often deployed for political reasons, uh, where you have policy actors who might have an antipathy towards uh, a particular group that's receiving services or the policy itself. And so, one way uh, that they can approach the policy instead of reversing it is to simply to make it more burdensome to access. So it becomes a form of uh, dysfunction by design. Um, The net result of that, though, from the citizens' point of view, is that suddenly they're experiencing much more hassles rather than help when they um, interact with government.
2: Well, and is the um, realization of these feedback loops in a way providing a new tool to the opponents of some of these policies that make them double down on these negative feedback effects do you know what I'm saying?
0: Yeah, I think to some degree we think that that's already happening. So um, it, in our book, we we basically take the biggest uh, programs in uh, the American budget. So we look at Social Security, Medicaid, Medicare, the earned income tax credit and food stamps. And, and those programs by themselves make up the bulk of the U.S. federal budget. And What we can show across those programs is that uh, Republican politicians have been particularly effective at looking for ways to add more burdens into those programs, partly because their uh, philosophical view of government is that many of these entitlements are unnecessary and will be better um, uh, provided by the marketplace. And so they have a higher level of suspicion of the programs themselves, they're more concerned, or, or they have a stated concern about fraud, um, and so they're willing to impose uh, more requirements, more documentation. Um, uh, we mentioned work requirements as a very good example there, where you see governors who are uh, intent on in adopting these uh, 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 tend to be more likely to come from red states rather than blue states. Um, and so, to some degree, this, this process is already happening, and it upends a little bit our notion or our conventional wisdom about what the political parties are like. So we we have this sort of intuitive belief about politics that uh, Democrats are the ones who are quite comfortable with using state power, whereas Republicans are much more concerned about the intrusion of state action into people's lives. And across these different policy domains, we show much more comfort on the Republican side using the rules and power of government to actually limit access to public services.
2: And now, of course, we're we're learning, as you're telling us, that there's a sort of added, I don't know, benefit, if you want to say, in suppressing voter engagement among those populations, which might be expected to vote for the other party. Is that true? Yeah, and,
0: and that happens in quite directly via um, election policies as well as through these uh, uh, downstream policy feedback effects. So one chapter in our book goes through uh, the history of voting in the United States and draws parallels with the efforts we've seen really since uh, the 2000s to limit access to the ballot. And these can take various forms, but Uh, In general, making it harder for people to register, requiring people to have uh, voter ID, removing people from the polls more frequently, uh, fit into a pattern of disenfranchisement that you can trace back in American politics for quite a long time. So there's that very direct uh, effort to use administrative burdens to make voting harder, the flip side of that is that in some blue states, the, the governors and legislatures that are embracing making voting easier um, are also doing so by trying to remove burdens. So doing things like allowing people to register on Election Day or uh, allowing uh, basically auto-registering people by using DMV information. Uh, so there's a very polarized element to that. But uh, in addition, you, once you set aside just election laws, there is this potential for people to become more disillusioned uh, with government and not see themselves as active citizens if their experiences of government are sort of uniformly burdensome. Um, and uh, if, if, you, if your takeaway from your interactions with the state is that this is just dysfunctional, you may decide I'm, I'm not going to invest the time and effort in trying to fix it.
2: Go ahead Amy jump in here.
1: Yeah, I, I regarding elections one thing that strikes me having you know lived in Maine since 1997 is and knowing a bit about the Voting systems over time is that I think it used to be pretty much bipartisan, though, to want to have access to the ballot, easy access to the ballot. And same day voter registration was adopted, what, about 1970? I, 1973
2: I, I, by a Republican majority legislature.
1: Right. And so, it, it you know, it was, um, you know, uh, something that was very bipartisan. But then we've seen some of those shifts, I think, and would agree over. Over time, um, in, in 2011, after Governor LePage was elected and the Republicans took the Maine legislature, they passed a law doing away with Election Day registration, but Maine has a kind of referendum system called the People's Veto, which allows voters to gather signatures and then overturn some new law, and it was overturned. It was overturned uh, really quite overwhelmingly, about 60-40 the vote was Uh, and you know since then Maine has done other things to make voting more accessible like the uh, automatic registration uh, system but um, you know it has become more partisan and you know but but it wasn't in the past which I think is is sort of interesting and it may be that you know politicians were were sort of at least in Maine, were we're less moved by the desire to find every single strategic advantage possible. Um, And, you know, when it came to something that was a small-D democracy kind of issue, would be happy to join together to make voting more accessible.
0: We have this period in American history where both parties seem to be genuinely interested in increasing turnout, Um, and that probably you could take the passage of the Voting Rights Act uh, in 1965 until about 2000 and say that's it. That, that, that was as long as that golden era lasted. Um, and I think after the 2000 election, after the Florida recount, you then see this pattern of a much more partisan approach to elections, I think partly because um, people just got better at figuring out well, if there's more turnout by this group, how does it affect our party? Um, and then the, the, the sort of next step in that process, if you start thinking about politics and elections in that way, is to think, well, what are the sort of requirements or, or, or burdens that you could put in place to uh, limit their participation? Uh, and, and Florida has been this fascinating example of this debate play out um, over the last couple of years, So Florida, if you look back in time, had felony disenfranchisement laws that were occurred in the Reconstruction era, era, very much targeted towards towards Blacks. Uh, It had, in our last elections in 2019, two-thirds of the voting population uh, said, we're going to make it easier for nonviolent felons to vote again, and the uh, legislature decided in their wisdom that they wanted to put a break in into that process and the way in which they did so by, but still trying to at least somewhat abide by the referendum was to require that people repay fines and fees. So it wasn't just the time that they had served, but they couldn't be allowed to vote again. Um, if they hadn't paid what many cases were tens of thousands of dollars, Mm -hmm. um, and then states, uh, states and localities would also have to set up processes by which this would be done, which would, excel, which would itself be a more complicated process. Uh, and so you went from this very clear directive from the public saying we want to make it easy for people to vote, and then the states stepping in again say, well, not so fast. Uh, we have certain concerns here about what, what it means for, for this population to vote. And so we're going to really put the brakes on by using a mixture of more uh, um, administrative requirements and more uh, uh, fines and fees in order to really limit uh, right. uh, voting participation.
2: At this point, I think I'd like to in- invite listeners to join our conversation. You're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our guests this morning are Amy Freed, professor and chair of the Department of Political Science at the University of Maine, and Don Moynihan, the McCourt chair at the McCourt School of Public Policy at Georgetown University. Our topic today is government doing good policy feedback effects and the civic divide. If you have a question or comment, you can join our conversation now by calling toll-free 866-625-9378. We're testing a fix to our phone line today, so bear with us while we figure out if the sound is going to be good. Um, we're also taking questions by email. You can email us at news at org. Don't wait till the last minute. Guest your question in um, as early as you can. Uh, we're, You know, we've been talking about the um, policy feedback effects in voting law, and I think, you know, we're all pretty clear that making voting harder depresses civic engagement. I mean, that seems like a pretty direct line. The surprising thing to me in reading up and preparing for this show is the extent to which uh, negative policy f- feedback effects in other policy areas depress voting and civic engagement. And I'd be curious to hear you each offer an example, the Affordable Care Act or something else that would illustrate how this um, how this works outside the voting area. Do you want to go first, Amy?
1: Well, um, you know, yeah, either you can have parts of the public that are more encouraged or discouraged to vote. And I'd actually say that, you know, with the Affordable Care Act recently, the fear of some kind of retrenchment of it has managed to activate a lot of citizens. I mean, we certainly saw that in the 2018 midterms when health care was really, really central to, the uh, quite a lot of uh, quite a lot of races, including right here in the second congressional district of Maine. I think it was a major, major issue in that race. Uh, so, you know, part of it is, you know, citizens are, are are sensitive to potential cutbacks to something that they've grown used to. The Affordable Care Act is such a complex law that, um, you know, I think you have to it's hard to know exactly which elements of it. Uh, were most important although I think just some of the really popular things like uh, protections for people with pre existing conditions uh, that was also something that when uh, there was the effort to, to repeal it came came up a lot in the in the politics and a lot of people were were activated to uh, contact their their legislators but I, then I think it was important also in people's voting and and it will continue to be uh, in in uh, the next election and uh because people you know do care a lot about having having access to health coverage
2: Dan, do you want to offer a sort of a contemporary example
0: yeah i'll, I'll stick with the healthcare area um uh, so there was a paper that was just published um by uh kate baker becker and amy finkelstein that looked at the effects of medicaid expansion in oregon so Oregon had this unusual setup where they essentially randomized uh, who would get uh, um, new access to Medicaid. And so people study the people who got the Medicaid and those who wanted to get it but didn't get it. And so you have this really neat way of, of just isolating the effects of getting access to the program within a state right there. So as social scientists, we love that. We think of that as this great natural mm-hmm. experiment. Um, and what they found was that participation in, increased in, you know fairly significant levels among the population that got access to, to Medicaid. Um, and it could be partly for the sort of reasons that uh, um, Amy had talked about earlier when we were talking about social Security, So, so if you get this new benefit, you're more motivated to be politically engaged because, wow, I really want to make sure I don't lose this. Mm-hmm. So I want to support the candidate who's going to promise to keep it. Mm-hmm. Um, but it may also be because of the this sort of interpretive effect. So you, you feel like you're more respected by the state. The state is investing in you. And so you have this reciprocal obligation as a citizen to pay that back. Um and it may also be because it simply it makes your life a little bit easier. And so if, if you're in a situation where you're constantly worried about whether you can have access to health care, if someone in your family is ill, that kicks up a lot of the, the mental space in your life and a lot of your cognitive uh, capacity is devoted just to that. And that's the less time you can devote towards um, politics. Um, and so, so those are, you know, those are different reasons when we can't really estimate how much each of those reasons matter. But collectively, it does seem like getting access to those benefits does matter. It also matters for, for example, in the area of food stamps, in terms of people's long, uh, long run educational outcomes. So if you're if you've got access to food stamps as a kid, compared to kids who were in a similar economic Position, that didn't get access to that to food stamps. You're more likely to finish school, go to college, be economically successful, and we already know that those factors are pretty good predictors on whether you'll vote or not.
2: Yeah, and um, it was, I'm I'm glad you raised raised the education one, Don, because you know early on Amy was saying about the GI Bill and Title IX, and I wonder if there are contemporary examples about difficulty accessing. Um, you know, even K through 12 education, much less higher education that, that researchers have been looking at now.
0: So, I think most of the variation we have on access to education is, is at the higher level, right? So, most people in, in the US um, get to high school, um, generally will finish it. There's, then there's going to be debates about what's the quality of high school that you get to. But where we see sort of big differences in outcomes is whether you go to college or not. And so if you go to college, you're just more, much more likely to participate. Um, and so we might ask ourselves, what are the barriers to getting to college? One obvious one is, can you afford to go or not, right? Um, in that question is an embedded uh, uh, an assumption that you have access to resources, which many people do not. But let's say that they wanted to go and they wanted to apply for low-interest loans from the government through uh, the FAFSA program. Again, what we find here is that the FAFSA program is this incredibly complex um, uh, form that you have to fill out that lots and lots of people just sort of give up with, right? Um, and uh, some experiments that have been taken, that have taken place about uh, FAFSA have shown that you just help people to complete the form, you know, you help them find the information they need, you help you walk them through the, the questions that seem daunting and complicated. It has a, a big effect not just on whether people fill out and submit the form, but whether they're actually in college two or three years later. And so then you can reasonably infer that helping people to um, complete FAFSA or simplifying the process going to have this net long run effect in whether to become active citizens who who are engaged in politics
2: you want to jump in on that amy at all i'll ask
0: the next question if you're
2: well uh, one thing
1: i'd add is uh, you know another way that people get um, uh, going back to the participation element of it you know that people get uh, experience and participation even if they haven't gone to college is sometimes through organizations so this is moving it, I guess, a bit off of uh, government policy itself, but you can counteract some of these partic- you know negative effects if you ha- if someone is involved in an organization where they're doing a lot in terms of uh, helping to organize events, planning meetings, speaking in front of meetings, those sorts of things. And uh, you have on the one hand some history of that in the labor movement, and also some, Sometimes in certain uh, religious organizations, depending on the denomination, where a lot of uh, individuals who are members of that church or whatever kind of <laughs> religious group we're talking about, who are who are, who really do get involved in planning things, and so even if you have kind of uh, you ha- you have a popula- population or a group of people who don't who haven't had the positive. Uh, citizenship effects of having gone to college they can pick it up in other kinds of settings and it's something that groups can think about in terms of trying to develop that those those sorts of uh, possibilities for people because then that also will give them that sense of empowerment And and I'd say that to the extent that the labor movement did did those sorts of things you know a certain uh, labor unions where that would be available, the decline of labor in the United States has that kind of negative participatory effect as well, uh, can make people feel less less empowered and more frustrated.
2: You're tuned to the Moxie Forum on WERU. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our guests this morning are Amy Freed, professor and chair of the Department of Political Science at the University of Maine, and Don Moynihan, McCourt Chair at the McCourt School of Public Policy at Georgetown University. We're talking about whether government is doing good, policy feedback effects, and the civic divide. If you have a question or comment, you can join our conversation now by calling 866 625 9378 or emailing us news at weru.org. Um, I want to talk about what policymakers and advocates should take away from this, like what are some of the hallmarks of good policy design that will increase civic engagement? So as we, you know, go to work on automatic voter registration or, you know, whatever the, po- the policy is, what are the things that we should be trying to build in, not only from a statutory perspective, but from a rulemaking perspective to make sure we take advantage of this new research for the better?
0: So, I, you know, I would say there's, there's a general principle of design here, which is that when you're designing and implementing policies, you should think about it from the user's perspective, right? You should think about how the person who's in the, the welfare office or the person who's trying to register to vote encounters that policy um, and, and being able to map out the user's experience, you know, how, how many steps do they have to take to learn about a policy or program, or how many offices they have to visit, how many forms do they have to fill out? Are there places where the state can step in to shift some of the burden away from the individual and onto the state? Um, I mean, and uh, I think Social Security is a great example of a policy that was designed very consciously to to uh, shield citizens from burdens and hassles right so so basically all you have to do with social security is remember your social security number right and then when you are ready to retire you fill out a form it doesn't take very long you can go to one of over a thousand offices across the country if you need extra help Uh, it's designed to feel simple and if you go to an office you 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 get respectful treatment, um, so it it feels simple. It feels like you're a respected and valued citizen, um, and that's that. That wasn't by accident. It's an enormously complex program, but it's one that's just been well designed to make sure that we haven't left all of the burden on the citizens who are who are experiencing the program, and that that wasn't inevitable. So you know, we in our book we. We go back to the history of Social Security, and we talk about some of the choices the designers made at the time. For example, they chose uh, not to do something like a stamp book, where someone would have to keep track of their earnings through stamps that would be provided by their employers every quarter, and then you would put that in a book. And then after 40 years, you would hopefully still have all your books, and you would turn that over to oh, government. Gosh. Right. Uh, so, you, you know, you can imagine all of the ways that would have gone wrong, yeah. right? You, you lose your books or your employer doesn't give you the book or you create a black market for stamps. And so the origins of the Social Security number, which is still the closest thing we have to a national ID, was the result of the choice that the government made at that time to say, how can we run this so we are making it simple for the user?
2: Go ahead, Amy, um, do you want to jump in on this? Like how what we should we as advocates be looking for as the hallmarks of good policy design because, you know, increasing voter engagement is the purpose of the League of Women Voters. Right. And now we've got opportunities outside our normal voting law area to put that um aspiration to work.
1: Well, there's an awful lot that's been done really well in maine that the league's been a part of you know in terms of same day voter registration and uh now automatic voter registration then changing now from the presidential caucus to the primary uh so i you know there's, there's a there's a lot of good things i'm not sure what the next steps will be in, in you know when it comes to voting um in a state like this um but to <clears throat> to go back to the, you know these kinds of social programs we're talking about, I think it is really important to think about not only the kind of barriers uh, and the burdens, certainly, all that is very important. And the social security history is absolutely fascinating. Uh, but, you know, moving forward with something like healthcare care, how much choice should there be for people? And on the one hand, I think we are seeing that people want, some kind of choice if you look at the polling on medicare for all uh, the idea sounds popular but then if it's you know involving not having any private insurance at all people don't like that uh, or everyone having to be enrolled in the in a public plan you know overall that isn't a popular idea on the other hand having a public option is extremely popular and that could be the basis to moving towards something that everyone would be enrolled in over time potentially and i think that that you have a couple of different things weighing there <clears throat> on the one hand americans are you know have this history of individualism and they like to be able to make choices and like every most everybody they're kind of risk averse you don't want to give something up if you already have something that's at least you're familiar with and may be working very well on the other hand um you know so you know just sort of doing away with private coverage doesn't seem to be a good idea but creating something where there's uh some choice and limited choice is is therefore good but too many choices and too many options can be really difficult Uh, we we are we are in such a incredible situation where I mean is the positives of having lots of different choices of absolutely everything you know when you go to the grocery store how many soups you can buy shopping for a flight or a car you know whatever you want you have so many different choices but that can also be really overwhelming and people experience decision fatigue.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So setting up systems where people, you know, something like healthcare, at least you provide some amount of choice, but not so much that it's really exhausting. and helping people figure that out. I mean, I know when the ACA first rolled out and once they figured out how to make the um, the marketplace you know website work properly, I would go through it and look at you know what the experience would be like to pick out a plan. And it was okay, but you know, it was not that easy. And that's why uh, there were healthcare navigators, you know, who were hired, you know, individuals that organizations could have, or you know, that that would help people pick out their health plan. I know, even like the Maine Lobstermen Association, at one point, they had navigators to help, you know, lobstermen who were self-employed individuals pick out health plans.
2: But I mean, you're talking about the Affordable Care Act as if it has, you know, overall sort of provided positive policy feedback effects, right?
1: Well, I think it has in terms of people not wanting it to go away. I think there's this fear that of of retrenchment and certain parts are more popular than than others but let's keep in mind that the least popular part of it which has now been done away with but had a very important role policy-wise was the mandate which i think shows uh illustrates my point that americans tend to like the idea of choice yeah um Yeah, although it was an important element of the policy working well.
2: And, Don hearing you talk a minute ago about the Social Security Administration made me want to ask a question about um, the administrative state and um, the civil service and the governmental bureaucracy. And the one that came to mind offhand was the IRS, which at one point was a much bigger, better Mm -hmm. service-oriented organization than it might be today. I mean, is sort of defunding the administrative state part of this whole suite of policy area?
0: Topics. Yeah, it, it absolutely puts strains on the ability of government to provide services. And so the IRS is a terrific example. Since uh, 2010, it's been cut by about 10% or so. I, I think that's correct. So it's seen really large number of cuts. And at the same time, it's serving more taxpayers than before, but it's also doing new things it didn't used to do before. So it, it plays a role with the Affordable Care Act, or at least uh, it, it had done in terms of uh, uh, the individual mandate. Um, and it, it, people don't think of it this way, but the IRS really is the delivery unit for some of our Largest social programs. So, the earned income tax credit is another good example where the IRS is the primary provider of that service. Um, and so, if you're in a situation where the IRS is being served, uh, one of the things that goes away pretty quickly is uh, customer service or support or help. Um, so, the IRS, in theory, could be doing a lot more. If people have a problem in answering their questions, uh, it could be doing more in helping to make tax preparation a lot easier. Uh, so in, in theory, that there is a legislative mandate that the IRS would help to provide free tax preparation services, and instead it's essentially allowed private tax actors to do that. Um, and I think it, it could be doing more generally to help make the state feel uh, more accessible and more welcoming. Uh, but you know right now, if you're commissioner of the IRS, you're basically trying to keep this dated infrastructure, aging workforce and mounting set of demands uh, in the air while you're juggling with fewer and fewer resources every year.
2: And so I as a taxpayer having a less and less satisfactory interaction with the IRS, Am left with the feeling that government is not doing a good job for me, or that I don't matter to the IRS. Or, I mean,
0: I think it's frustration, right? You yeah. know, so, so think about when you fill out your taxes each year. April fifteenth is never a day that people are looking forward to, at least when it comes to the paperwork. Uh, you might be open to get a refund, but the paperwork is frustrating, and if you've ever had try and call the IRS, or if you got a letter from the IRS trying to get through those processes, they, they're not pleasant. You might have to wait an hour uh, online, or you, you might get a letter saying that you made a mistake in your tax returns. That's just hard for you as a regular citizen to interpret. Right. So I think you, you feel a sense of frustration If you're in the the place where you're getting contact from the IRS, maybe it's a place of of fear and stress also.
2: Um,
0: So people are generally not excited to have the IRS (laughs) in their lives, but there's a lot more they could do to make those uh, interactions uh, less stressful, include less friction. Um, And I think some of that depends on large investments uh, so that they can help do things like uh, data sharing. Yep. Right. So, so a lot of uh, our ability to make programs work more easily from the citizen's point of view depends upon sharing of administrative data um, that's tied to your social security number, and the IRS plays a huge role in that. Yep. Um, but if, if they're operating these archaic technologies um, with limited staff, they're just less and less inclined to invest in that as a priority.
2: We're starting to run out of time here, and I want to give you each a a couple of minutes to make some parting comments. So go ahead, Amy, very quickly, parting shot here.
1: Well, I do think uh, it's something that this whole topic is something that uh, policymakers should be thinking about more as they put together policies and policy designs, if they want the policy both to work well for its stated policy goals and to keep people involved in politics and um, interested in improving the government and, you know, make things work better for all of us. Uh, It's something that should be taken into account in designing policies and also looking at how they're implemented.
2: Don, last thoughts about how this topic fits into a vibrant democracy?
0: Yeah, I I think... For policymakers and for the public, it means incorporating citizens into the policy process and in, in ways that are beyond the sort of just going to vote every two years or going to a town hall meeting, but recognizing that citizens are the recipients of policies, they're affected by policies, um, and those effects can be negative or, or, or positive. So so recognizing that human beings are at the center of the policymaking process, and that when we design policies or we think about how to implement policies, that that we put their experiences um, first and foremost. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Thanks a lot. Um, Don, we are now pretty much out of time, so thank you to our guests this morning, Amy Freed, professor and chair of the Department of Political Science at the University of Maine, and Don Moynihan, McCourt chair at the McCourt School of Public Policy at Georgetown University. In addition to the books that um, our guests mentioned, there are some other resources at our website, that's lwvme.org. You've been listening to the Democracy Forum today, a project of the League of Women Voters Down East, produced in cooperation with WERU-FM. Thank you to Amy Brown, our engineer at WERU. Thank you to our listeners. December's installment of the Democracy Forum will be a rebroadcast of the popular June 2019 show, Town Meeting, Doing Democracy in Your Town. January will bring the first of our 2020 election year series at a new time, Still the third Friday of the month, but now in 2020 at 4 o'clock p.m., Friday, 4 o'clock p.m., third Friday of the month, right here on your community radio station, W E R U F M. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you next month.